And I was talking about storms. I was talking about the kinds of events that blow through, literally blow through our lives and leave us afterwards to have to clean up the debris. And little did we know, the next day, one struck. Monday, quiet campus. Happened there, but there could be anywhere. Could happen here. I hope you weren't too saturated, too overwhelmed this week by all the media coverage of what happened at Virginia Tech. I trust, obviously, that you saw the aftermath in many different ways. This morning, we're still trying to sift through the remains of what's left after in our feelings. Not many of us, perhaps, have a connection to Virginia Tech. Mine is tenuous at best. Maybe some of you, it's stronger. We have a family friend who's a recent graduate. The most I could do this week was just call him, send him an email, say I was thinking of him. These are my prayers and my thoughts. Maybe your connection is greater. But when such violence is done to life, relatively close to us, we pay attention. And so we gather today in this light. Perhaps like many of you, I thought at first of what I could control or what we can control, what we can set our hands to. I focused first on what, you know, would give us some protection. So my thoughts turned to Columbine and Paducah and closer to home to West Philly. All the places where the relative ease of getting a handgun have turned our schools and our churches and our streets and our homes into places of mourning. We learned yesterday, in the last couple days, that the killer's history of mental illness should have absolutely disqualified him from getting and purchasing a weapon. Might we not ever, together as a people, might we not ever just treat handguns as carefully, at a minimum at least, as we treat and consider our automobiles? So much blood spilled. So much blood shed. I'm not naive about the Second Amendment. But so many deaths at the barrel of a gun. Too many. And like the controversy was this past week, we focused on Cho Sung Hee. Just saying his name feels odd. Like a spell that casts nightmares. Now to try to understand him is not an attempt to excuse what he did. We talk, especially in our tradition, we talk of the design spark, that inner light that shines within us all, like 32 lights that he extinguished. We are heirs of the universalist tradition that seeks to bless the entire world, the entire world, all of us. So I think, was a killer born without that light, or was it dimmed so low by his illness, his sadness, his rage, that finally there was nothing left in his life to be illuminated, Maybe a more forceful act of reaching out, one that even perhaps intruded upon what he thought was his right to privacy, would have kept him from this last, final act of desperate, awful brutality. The root of the word monster, you know what it means in Latin? It means warning. It means warning. How many warning signs were missed or not fully acted upon in his life that could have spared his life and, yes, more importantly, the life of all those that he chose to take. But throughout that week, I found myself running down those laundry lists of things that I thought I could control or we could control. But finally, you know what base is what's left? Sadness and anger and fear. Just a profound sense of insecurity 
And that kind of stuff we can't control in this life so much. Yes, we can make things better and we're called to make things better, but we cannot make still all the waves that cause us to tremble and cause us to be cast about in this life sometimes. Last week, a little threat, but not the reality of a storm that might have flooded and washed us away. This week, violence from a human hand that destroyed life. It's what the philosophers throughout the ages have traditionally called natural and moral evil. One descends from the moving of an earth beyond our control, and one comes from the hand of the wicked or the warped who have escaped the bonds of our human family. The tsunami and the mass murderer, the earthquake and the tyranny of evil people. Sometimes brokenness shakes the foundations of life. But in bewilderment, in sorrow, even in fear, we are reminded of something greater. We know that there is another truth to our life. Our own response, our tears, our concern, our compassion, these are plumb lines that we cast down into the depths to truly measure how connected we are in this life. You see, we can't plunder and we can't steal from something that is shallow. Sometimes the price of our own inestimable value, it is paid in our tears. When life is severed, still we yearn for connection. We remember that there is a single source and a common destiny to our lives. This is what Unitarian Universalism means above all. There is a single source, a common destiny for all of our lives. It's the inescapable web of mutuality that Dr. King preached about. We are locked into it. We are a part of it. We cannot get outside of it. Life is wounded and we are shocked scared or even angry, but let us turn again to life. That is the lesson. Our own tradition's great single teacher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, composed a poem just after the death of his namesake and his beloved five-year-old son. The poem is called Threnody. He wrote, The greater fate that carried thee took the largest part of me, for this losing is to dying this is lordly man's down lying. This his show, but sure reclining. Star by star, his world resigning. There is loss, my friends, that reminds us of how fragile and sometimes how precarious life is, even if we don't see it at every moment, even if it would be too much to see it at every moment. It's the place in our hearts where the ultimate beyond all names for it, and the intimate, that which is closest to us. These things come together and we know that we are standing on holy ground, but sometimes holy ground is also ground in which we fear and tremble upon. It touches all of us and it binds us just beyond our solitary lives. But Emerson, because he was a great teacher, just couldn't name despair and sadness. He could name hope as well. He could name that greater truth that bound all of our lives together. Will thou not hope this heart to know what rainbows teach and sunsets show? The verdict which accumulates from lengthened scrolls of all human fates, voice of earth to earth returned, prayers of heart that truly inly burned, saying what is excellent as God lives is permanent. Hearts are dust, hearts loves remains. Hearts love will meet thee again. That last line. Hearts are dust, hearts love remain. Hearts love will meet thee again. No teaching, no scripture, no philosophy, no theology can prove this, but it stands at the center of our common humanity. 
that loss, even violence, does not have to be the final sentence upon our lives. William Ellery Channing, years ago, almost two centuries ago, the first president of organized Unitarianism, said it this way proudly in prose, not in poetry, I am a living member of the great family of all souls. I am a living member of the great family of all souls. And I cannot improve or suffer myself without diffusing good or evil around me through an ever-enlarging sphere. Too many traditions want to talk about the truth of who they are as a line, dividing the sheep from those cast out, the elect from the damned, the saved from the not saved. But he got it right, right at our origins of American Unitarianism. It is not about a line that divides, it is about a circle that enlarges, enlarging the circle of our hope. That is our message to the world. And our truth is not how many people we can cram into that circle by saying, get in or get out. But come in here because in here is a place of communion. Come in here because in here is a place of love. Come in here because here is a place where we all can belong. I am a living member of that great family of all souls. That is an affirmation for this morning. In our age, we've come to call this interdependence. All life is relationship. Connection goes right down to the core of who we are. Religious life is so much more than just what we can express with our words or in thought. It is that feeling that never fully captured, never fully expressed experience of being related as a part to the whole to which is our birthright and our destination. All real religious teaching points in this direction. Such moments that let us know, perhaps as you might feel today or some Sundays, when we're wondering, am I alone in the universe? Look to your right. Look to your left. We're not. We're not. This is the embodied representation of that truth. All great religious teaching points to that. There is a truth greater than our aloneness. It is the truth of being enraptured on a beautiful day like today, when spring felt like it perhaps would never arrive, and yet it does gloriously. And we feel it, and the senses come alive. It is the grandeur of this creation, the wonder of how remarkable, how unlikely, how awe-inspiring it is that creation has made room for us. That whatever process it was that led back through the generations, whatever set it in motion and down into the summatomic level that we all share, it was a mystery yielding to a mystery yielding to a mystery leading to a mystery that gave birth to you. And you are here this morning. Here you are. And here we are. Alive. Instead of not. I think that miracle needs no other definition other than this. And this is the proof of miracle that has provided us. There is a greater truth of our aloneness, greater truth than our aloneness. We know it when we spend time in the company of people who lift up our spirits. The one who sing and dance and spread their wings into the natural abundance of wisdom in this life. The one whose wealth of spirit is spread about them like a light that helps you illuminate your path. Maybe communion comes about through you. It's not a word that happens in church. It's not a word that happens in a building. It is a place and it is a people that you carry with you when you go and you open yourselves up to the other. 
It is the place where one, piece of, one person speaks a word of truth so profound that something that was in broken in you has an opportunity to name itself for the first time and your struggles and your strivings, you are remembered that it's not in the nature to be alone. We know together that we share so much. At such times of these deep communion, this deep conversation, we know there is no teacher and there is no student, there is no leader and there is no follower. There is just the shared presence of authentic human presence. Just light that reaches out for light. And there is a truth greater than our aloneness in the quiet moments. And I hope you all have been blessed with these recently in your life. In the quiet moments of solace in the form of a friendly knock on the door, a phone call that you weren't expecting, a kind word, a hug, the kind of thing that arrives just in time when you feel that you are skidding toward the edges of your known self and you are anxious that you will reach a limit that you will not be able to return from. In those times when we are disfigured by sorrow and we can't bear to look at ourselves for fear of what we might see in the mirror, what a blessed assurance it is to know that face to face others will see us and will take us as we are and welcome us into a place that we know is home. Rahane Salam is a political blogger, and this past week he was writing about the events of Virginia Tech. He was particularly talking about that loneliness of despair that comes in the form of mental illness for so many people, millions of people are in society, and he was writing about when he experienced something like that. In November 2001, I was rattled, he says, like a lot of people, by the news of the world, but I also was hit by what now seems like a minor personal tragedy. Namely, a young woman broke my heart in the massive, soul-crushing way that only an adolescent can really appreciate. I was depressed, dangerously depressed, I'm afraid. I made it to work every day, and I think I did a decent job, but as soon as I returned home to my own cocoon, I felt awfully hopeless and alone. My army of good friends, well, they were in California and Massachusetts and New York, and I was languishing in the District of Columbia. I vividly remember in my basement apartment reading books all night long and listening to the song by Death Cab for Cutie called Photo Booth over and over and over again on endless repeat. It was bad. I mean, really, really bad. And then one day I came home and found that my mother was there waiting for me. Apparently she had heard about my dark mood from my friends and she was worried. She woke me up in that moment. See, my mom doesn't even know how to drive. She took off from work and found her way from Brooklyn all the way down to Washington just mere minutes after she got that phone call. Understand that my mother could never make it to any of my school plays or debate tournaments when I was growing up because she was working so incredibly hard all the time. But there she was, standing in my doorway. I mean, I was angry at first. I was far from suicidal. I was just extremely, extremely depressed. Then it occurred to me that I maybe I needed to suck it up because I was doing more than just hurting myself. On those rare occasions when I reflect on how really rough those weeks were, I think how lucky I am to have had friends who were attuned absolutely to my mood, even over the phone, and to have a crazy, wonderful mother who'd go to tremendous lengths for me. The grace of that unexpected visit, greater than our loneliness and sometimes even greater than our despair, Paul Tillich is one of my favorite theologians. And he rejected all the dominant images of God in his time because he felt at base they were idolatrous, that they just were a reflection 
just a reflection of what people wanted the universe to be and one of those lines that divided people from each other. But still he believed in that forming power of religious faith, of the spiritual life. And he did so because of his experience of grace, of life that was reunited with life. In what was arguably his most famous sermon, he was a great academic, but he was an even better preacher. He preached a simple message, three little words. You are accepted. You are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know and has no name. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find one later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. From there on, perhaps the transformation comes. It's a transformation we can't control entirely. Emerson, again, who if you remember back to reading the famous Self-Reliance, he's really the first self-help guru, the guru of American individualism. Perhaps some of you read it in high school. Well, Emerson knew a deeper truth beyond just self-reliance. He said, faith makes us, we don't make it. Religious life is about opening ourselves up to more than just ourselves alone. So many of us paid attention this past week. Our eyes were opened, even if we weren't directly affected. So the question is now, what do we do with it? What does it mean? Was it just something that we tuned in a little bit more into CNN or online news? Just a little bit more frequently than perhaps we do. But the lessons are many if we want to stay in tune and paying attention. The first is this. Do not wait for another tragedy to wake you up. That is too high a price to pay. In one of the many lessons of September 11, 2001 that still echo out for us, do you know that the, was, the most important day was for giving blood? Not all those people, and I was one of them who signed up. I said, I have to do something. It has to be some way I can control, some way I can get my hands around this tragedy. You know what the most important day was to give blood? September 10th. That's the day that mattered. Ordinary time ordinary life in the swim of things in the midst of things when we weren't waking for another waiting for another tragedy to have to wake us up it was in that moment when life was just going along that's when showing up matters the most kindness compassion awakening these are daily practices and i can tell you that even if sometimes they might be spurred on by nightmares that is not fertile soil enough for the basis of a spiritual life at Wellsprings, we believe that each of us, each of us yearns for connection with each other and with the sacred. If there is a lesson to Mr. Cho's life, to the killer's life, it is of the consuming hellishness of life that is completely set apart from other lives. A life that has only himself, only life set apart and set against other lives. Sartre said that hell was other people. He was wrong. Hell, as we might imagine it, is only and ever ourselves without any connections, with no opportunity to realize the truth greater than our aloneness. So we can recognize this morning that the curtain in this week of the aftermath after the storm has been drawn back a little bit, but it will be continue to be drawn back if we can look upon our lives with these appreciative eyes. 
if we can look into each other eye, each other's eyes with appreciation, with knowledge that, you know what? It is just a gift to be here. Nothing ordained it so. And yet, this is what we are blessed with. Take nothing for granted. Here in this time, this is the opportunity where awakening can occur. Because at the end of the day, there is the time of solitude. Perhaps you stand before the mirror, brushing your teeth, preparing for that final solitude of the day. In that prayer of quiet time before our dreams dream us throughout the night, we are by ourselves. We always stand at that threshold of sleep, just as one day all of us will stand on our own before the mystery of death. But we know when we look at that mirror, if we truly look at all those eyes and all those people that we contain within us, as Whitman said, we contain multitudes. We know that there is more than just the mirror staring back at us. We did not set the earth in motion. We did not ordain the dawn and the dusk. We did not choose that sleep must visit us. In all these things, we are chosen. All must pass this way. We are not alone. And so before our eyes close for the night, perhaps you see them. Our loved ones, loved ones who are now lost, places like Virginia Tech, here and gone, the mysterious countless others, the poor and the exalted, the joyous and the sad, the peaceful and those who know no peace. All will pass this way with us. They are here. They are here too. And so with them and with ourselves, we rest. Amen. May you live in blessing.